You're listening to a sermon delivered at First Family Church in Ankeny, Iowa. For more information and sermons, visit our website at firstfamily.church. So before we dive into three weeks on evangelism, a series to kind of kick this year off with, just a short dive into this topic, I don't want us to miss the short of it. That's this. Somebody near you needs Jesus. So we spend three weeks in this study. We learn terms and facts and concepts, and we actually get smarter about the subject. We feel like we know more. Maybe we get some tactics or some tricks of the trade. We even got some tips. But if we don't realize that actually all of that is for the purpose of of talking to someone who's near us that needs Jesus, then what good is learning more information if it's not translated into action? So I just want to remind you, over the next three weeks, regardless of how much you learn or what you agree with or don't agree with or how you're challenged or, or pricked or, or prodded, it's all designed to help us realize somebody near you needs Jesus. So could we just begin this journey through this short series by asking God to place that name on our heart and then never let us get away from their lost condition? Could we do that? Let's bow our heads, can we? I'm going to give you about 20 seconds to pray those two ideas. Just kind of run on those tracks, would you? Ask God for a name. And my guess is you already have a name. If you work a job, live in this city, or or doing anything outside of your four walls, you've met people. You know them. Who's that person near you that needs Jesus? And would you pray then that God would never... Let their lost condition get away from you. Take 15 seconds and pray that, would you? With your heads still bowed, can I visit my past for a moment with you as a way to close this prayer time? Even driving in this morning, just thinking of this exact prayer time and just what I'm asking God to do in my heart, the Holy Spirit brought to mind a a simple chorus that I learned as a kid, probably junior high age, maybe high school, I'm not sure, but we sang this in our church sometimes. And it captures the, the essence of what I think I'm wanting us to, to realize in this short time of prayer as we enter into this series on evangelism. It, it goes like this. Lord, lay some soul upon my heart and love that soul through me. And may I humbly do my part to lead that soul to thee. Lord, that's my prayer, and I am praying that for our people. And I ask, Lord, that they would pray that with me. Who is the someone near us that needs you? And may their lost condition be ever-present on our radar. In the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, we ask these things, and the church prayed together. Amen.
Well, as you know by now, we're beginning a three-week series on evangelism. It's called Intentional Evangelism for Normal People. And why do I title it that way? That's kind of a bland title. I like, you know, catchy words and things that have double meaning sometimes. and to kind of, They're memorable. But this is kind of plain and to the point. I think I use this title because that's just something that, that I struggle with. I feel like I'm pretty normal, a lot like you. And I think evangelism should be intentional. And I'm like, man, I don't do this real well. So I thought, I'll just preach a series on it. And we'll row this boat together and see what we can learn. And so we're going to spend three weeks learning about intentional evangelism by people like you and like me. I hope you've gathered that I'm preaching this first and foremost. And maybe this is selfish. I don't know. Because I need it. Do you know that? I need this three-week series. I battle intentional evangelism. I, I would love to say to you, oh, I'm really good at it, but the truth is I'm really not. It's a daily struggle for me. I can easily get just kind of surrounded by the walls of the church and think that everything's hunky-dory and we're doing good and forget that really what's happening outside of these walls matters as well. Are you with me? Can I kind of row that boat with me? You can nod. Feel free to. So I'm preaching this because you need it, but I need it, but I think that means probably you need it too. I don't think I'm that much different than a lot of you in a lot of ways. Now, as I was thinking this through, I was asking myself, why do I think I need it? And I think it's because as I read through passages like Acts 17, I find that Acts 17, the last portion of it, it seems out of the ordinary to me, and I don't think it should. You with me? So when I, when I realized that, like, wow, that, that seems odd. That seems like an outlier, out of the ordinary. But it really shouldn't be. Then I'm thinking, I, I need some work in this area. Can we just read this text together? And if you feel like, wow, that's unreal, that's crazy, that's, that's out of the ordinary. Actually, it shouldn't be. It should be a template for how we engage people. Maybe that would kind of open your heart to realizing, I need this too. Here's what the last portion of Acts 17 records for us. I'll begin in verse 16. Just listen to this narrative. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, this is Silas and Timothy, his partners, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. And so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new, i.e., first century Facebook. Uh, Verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, he does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, 
since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, so that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and the woman named Damaris, and others with them. When I read that, I think that's out of the ordinary. That just seems like, wow, what, a, what an amazing thing to happen. That can never happen to us. I can never do that. And actually, I should think the opposite. That actually should be ordinary. Because why should the mingling with lost people, the chatting, the discussion, the conversation about what different people believe, the sharing of what we believe, and then the mixed response from that. Why should that seem so out of the ordinary? So if you're like me, thinking, man, that's just really out there, I think maybe it's just time to embrace the fact that maybe you need the series like this as well. A refresher, a reviver from God's word on what exactly is our role when it comes to evangelism. You see, I think there's some reasons that, that, that I don't do well at evangelism. First of all, I think I'm, I'm scared of it. Now, I don't mean I'm scared of the actual concept of evangelism. I'm scared of people's response to my efforts at it. <laughs> all right? Like, if I'm just with you, I can be really bold. Amen to that? I can be clear, accurate, and you would think that I'm really enjoying telling you about Christ, which I am, but pack the room full of lost people, put me in a restaurant with some folks who don't know Christ, put me on a soccer field, picking up a kid from an errand, hanging out with some friends we've met maybe at a, a social function, and the topic of Christ comes up, and suddenly even your pastor, then his mouth gets watery, tongue gets thick, and you're like, ooh, what should I say here? What's the right thing? When's the right time? And, and sometimes I fear crossing that, that threshold, the line from just normal conversation to conversation that actually matters about eternal stuff. I just fear because I think, what are they going to think of me? Will it affect my kids? Will they think I'm weird? Will it ostracize our family? Will they look at me with like rose-colored glasses? Like, What's going to happen if I actually take a step and talk about something that's much more important than the weather or the score of the game? Or are you a Hawkeye or a Cyclone? I'm scared of it. I'll just be honest with you. I have fears in that area. I'm also bad at it. Did you know that? Not in front of you. In fact, you're probably a lot like me. If I were to ask you to, to definitively lay out why you're a Christian, 
why you believe the gospel and why it is by, that you're saved by grace through faith. You could probably do that well in here, couldn't you? But put you with some folks who don't know Christ, and again, the same thing happens. We, we get kind of like this, and we, <laughs> we suddenly can't talk, and we get fearful, and we're like, well, call my pastor. He'll tell you. We say that, right? Can I just be very transparent with you? Sometimes I'm not real good at evangelism. Um, and I'm somewhat fearful of it. So for that reason, for those reasons, sometimes I don't muster up the courage, like I said, to, to initiate conversations. Oh, they may not be the kind of conversations that spell it all out immediately, but even just to begin that relationship, to begin that conversation, because I'm fearful of what may happen in their response, or I'm thinking, well, what if I don't, I don't answer all their questions? Now, because I think you're a lot like me, watch this. A church filled with people who are scared of it and bad at it is not a good thing. <laughs> Can we just be that honest about our own selves? We look in the mirror and say, wow, if that is somewhat average, that there's a lot of us who are probably scared of it and bad at it, what do you say we get some help with that? What do you say we look at Acts 17 and ask ourselves, if, it's really, if this is really normal, if we should be able to mingle with lost people, have conversations, discuss what they believe, what I believe, and be able to live with a mixed response after sowing seed. If that really should be kind of a template for our behavior, but man, that's not happening because we're scared of it and bad at it. Let's get some help. Let's dive into Acts 17, and let's see how the Lord can move our hearts towards loving evangelism, intentional evangelism for normal people like us who actually in a lot of ways are scared of it and bad at it. Can you join me in that journey? Now today, I've got to be honest with you, I've got a lot to talk about. I won't get through with it all. So tonight, we're going to come back at 4.30, for those that can, kind of an impromptu symposium on evangelism. My, uh, our elders, deacons are going to join me, those that want to. We're going to talk about all the questions you're going to text in. We'll save those for tonight. I want to kind of dig into one other text and talk about what ambassadorship is. Uh, we're going to discuss maybe a few tactics. I'll recommend some books that have helped me. But I just want you to be aware that we're, we're going to kind of build a long runway for this topic. Probably the next two weeks will be more on the tactics, more on the like how-to side. This week, there won't be a lot of that. Because I've got to kind of build a, a runway that's pretty long to get this jet airborne, okay? So that means, first of all, we've got a pretty long introduction to a single verse I want to see in this text. So if you think I'm never going to get to the text, I will, but it will be a bit, okay? So can you bear with me as I kind of build this runway for you? Because I want this plane, in the today, tonight, and the next two weeks, to really take flight well with you. I want to see our church, I'll just put this out there, I want to see our church changed in this area. I want to see us sharing conversations about the ultimately important thing more often. I want to see it in my life. I want to see it in your life. I want to see us become better evangelists. <laughs> I want us to love evangelism. But to see that take place... By God's power and grace, we're going to need to kind of build a good runway. So that's our aim, is to get some help for something that we're scared of and bad at. Now, because you know that, I want to kind of lay out for you also a couple of goals for this three-week series. They're these. I want to show you, first of all, and I'll do this mainly this week, that evangelism is actually highly theological. Now, don't think I'm going to take you and enroll you in seminary. I'm not going to do that, but I do want to start where evangelism begins, and that is with God. And I tend to think a lot of the reason we struggle with evangelism 
is because we begin at the wrong place. We typically begin with man. Man is part of the picture, but it isn't the beginning point. So understand, one of my goals is to show you that evangelism is actually highly theological, but it's also plainly, and watch this, necessarily accessible. We all should be embracing our roles as an ambassador and sharing conversations about the ultimately most important issue. How do we do that? We're going to talk about that in this series. We're going to make it plainly accessible. I think you'll be shocked. I hope that word is what happens. At actually how, I don't want to use the word easy, but how accessible true evangelism actually is. And I think we don't think it's accessible. And what I mean by that is attainable because we have some misconceptions about evangelism. Again, I'm just building a runway. Everybody hang with me, okay? We're kind of in the tarmac. The pilot's saying, just 10 more minutes and then we'll take off. That's where we are right now, okay? Here's some misconceptions that I think uh, we have about evangelism. And I don't think they're false lies. I think they're incomplete truths. And for some reason, we've come to kind of adopt one of these. Most people will say, well, I'm a number, I'm one, two, or three. Here, here they are. Misconception one is that evangelism is only a presentation of the gospel facts. That until you get there, you're really not evangelizing. Like, no other talk matters. No other kind of relationship or interaction matters. You just got to get to the facts, and then you got to spit them out. And so often we say, well, I've presented the gospel. And so it's almost like evangelism takes on this, this salesman idea. I, I presented, I finally got to that point, and I, I, I spit the facts out. We think it's only presentation of gospel facts. Or we think it's only observation of a gospel life. Like, dude, I don't ever say a word. I'm just living my life. People ask, they can. They can watch and see. And you know what? If they want to know, I'll tell them. But I don't say a word. I just live, I just live in front of them. Like, that's probably very admirable, but it's unbiblical. In fact, I'm beginning to actually, I'm beginning to think that there is no evangelism without words. I think I can prove that biblically. I'm not quite ready to have that conversation yet. But in my own personal study, I'm just beginning to wonder, can you even really evangelize if at some point you don't use words? Then we have those of us who think, well, it's only proclamation. It's a gospel sermon. And so because some people think that, all they do is give invitations to gospel services. Hey, come to church with me. And then when they say, well, why do you want me to go to church, Sean? Why do you go to church? Don't ask me that. Just come to church with me and then call my pastor. He'll tell you. If we had this idea that we're just like a walking billboard, come to First Family, hear the gospel. Come to First Family, hear the gospel. But if they were to ask us, we again would have the old kind of thick tongue, dry mouth. Like, Ugh. I don't think any of those in and of themselves are necessarily bad, or that, but I don't think they're, they're evangelism. I think evangelism is all three of those contained within a circle that is surrounded by two things, relationship and conversation. I'll have a picture here for you, but just kind of picture in your mind. Observation, presentation, proclamation, invitation, all those are in a circle, but it's surrounded by relationship and conversation. And until you have a relationship and conversation, what you're going to find is those three things will probably, they may be effective, but they're going to be less effective than if you attach them together in in an environment where there's relationship and conversation. Because in a natural relationship fed and fueled by a conversation you gradually then find times for 
presentation of the gospel. Invitation to a gospel service. Proclamation of the gospel message. Those things happen in that environment without conversation and without relationship. A lot of times they seem kind of uh, forced or stale. Now, now I'm going to just be very vulnerable with you for a minute. The one exception to this is the idea, often of street preachers, uh, door-to-door witnesses. Those have their place, but I'll be very vulnerable with you. I think, personally, they're the least effective way to evangelize. I didn't say they never work. I didn't say they don't have their place. Some would even say that in this passage, Paul is street preaching. I'll disagree and explain to you why tonight. I think the most effective evangelism is the kind that centers in on a relationship fueled and fed by a conversation that in the course of time will include things like observation, presentation, invitation, proclamation. Those are all part of it. That's the place when when we sow the seeds of the gospel, I think the best fruit is born. So that leads me to kind of explain to you what, or kind of I guess relate to you what my definition of evangelism is. If someone forced me to say, well, what do you think evangelism actually is by definition? I would say this. It is simply a natural conversation about supernatural conversion. Now, I didn't steal that from somewhere. I didn't read that or, 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 or hear that. After just studying and reading through several passages and, and thinking, how, how as a normal person would I hear that? I, I tend to think this is actually how the Bible presents evangelism, as a natural conversation about supernatural conversion, which means, let's put it even simply, it's just sowing seed. It's talking about what matters most. Now, if this definition is true, that means we need to have a couple of, guard, uh, I think four guardrails for it, or it could, kind of get, uh, it could be detoured, it could be derailed. So I think four guardrails you need as you think about this definition. Remember, we're still on the tarmac, Okay, we're about to take an off. We're maybe uh, taxing now a little bit, okay? Here's some guardrails for that definition. I think it will make a lot more sense if you think about this. That conversation that's natural and ongoing about supernatural conversion, it needs to be initial, which means you're willing to talk about the weather, sports, your kids' dance, dance class, why you signed up for Ankeny Junior Football, why you're coaching Little League Softball, why you chose this preschool, why you bank here, why you get gas here, what brings you to the gym so early, on and on and on. All those are great things to begin conversations, but that's not the point of the conversation or the relationship. So it is initial. It's also progressive. That means you're willing to invest time in a relationship and in a conversation. You don't have to have it all presented on day one or an hour one, but you're going to have this conversation. You're going to make it ongoing and progressive so that you can eventually talk about the most important thing, which is why number three guardrail helps here. You know that the conversation has an ultimate point, and that is that you want to share with them what ultimately matters in life. Have they responded to Jesus Christ? Do they know the truth about who Jesus was and what he's done for them? And that is done best in a relational context. So I think the definition that evangelism is simply a natural conversation about supernatural conversion is understood best within these guardrails. That you have an initial aspect to it, a progressive aspect, as well as an ultimate aspect, but it's all, best done with, it's all done best within that context of relationship. Now listen very carefully. Let me address something here that I think is important. Sometimes people will criticize us, and I say us as general evangelical Protestant believers. They'll say, well, then you see people like projects. 
You just loving them for the for 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 the ultimate ulterior motive of seeing them come to Christ. You just really don't want to get to be their friend just for being their friend. You have another purpose behind your efforts. That's partly true. And it's high time we embrace that. For instance, if you didn't know me, but you were sitting in our parking lot right here, and I was crossing the street from uh, on, the, on the north side of magazine coming towards the church. And about that same time, a, a big Ankeny sanitation truck was just cresting that small little hill there, going pretty fast, let's say. And I didn't hear, had, had my earphones in, let's say, just kind of skipping along. And I get to the middle of the road, and that Ankeny sanitation garbage truck is just a, you know, a dozen or so feet away, barreling down, honking the horn. I don't hear a thing, I'm oblivious. But you didn't know me, and you're kind of in the parking lot. Would you say, you know, I don't know him, and I really don't know if I want to get to know him. My ulterior motive here is to save his life, but actually, that's probably, I don't know if I trust that. I'm not going to say anything. You, you should laugh at that. That's ludicrous, people. You would say, hey, stranger, I don't know you. Watch out! You would, and you should. You and he would run over to me. You might push me down. You might actually injure me temporarily to actually save me from physical death. You wouldn't care if there was an ulterior motive. I come to on the side, well, oh, do you really want to get to know me as, a, as an individual? Do you really care about? He said, I, don't, I might actually not like you, but I saved your life, dude. That's what you'd be saying, right? And I think the American church has gotten so used to hearing the world accuse us of ulterior motives that we've actually bought into that lie. There is actually some truth to the fact that we do want to get to know people for reasons that they, they may not be aware of right now. One of those is this, that every person, according to this text, is created by God and will spend eternity somewhere when they're judged by Jesus Christ. You need to know this. So yeah, I will start a conversation over a counter at Chipotle. I'll get to know the bank teller when I'm paying for gas. All kind of environments which we're going to start conversations to see how they respond, to see whether or not at some point in that conversation and relationship we could tell them about what really matters. And if you're uncomfortable with that, you're going to be uncomfortable with evangelism. I don't think that's completely an ulterior motive, personally. But the world has made us think that. And so just when you read this about these guardrails, understand something. It does take intentionality to build conversations into existing relationships for the purpose of sharing what ultimately matters most. As we think through these misconceptions, as we think through how they actually occur and what we should believe, I was thinking this week, if I'm saying that basically it takes the, you've got to risk getting to know someone to some degree. Like you've got to kind of cross that line and, and have a conversation. You've got to, you know, you've got to be willing to kind of start that ball rolling, so to speak. Very few people actually, I believe, come to Christ in a situation where it's with someone they've never met, they've never known. I'm not saying that doesn't have their place. It does happen. But a lot of times, that's the exception. That it usually happens with someone we know. It's in conversations that have a relationship kind of surrounding them. I thought, is that really true? So I'm going to test that live right now. Can we do that? If you have our app, pull your phone out, would you? I want you to take a survey with me. 
And I might have egg on my face in 10 minutes. I don't know. We'll see. But I want you to answer this question. It'll be a simple survey we'll have on the screen behind me. So far, I'm 0 for 1. (laughs) But I was introduced to Christ, led to the Lord through someone I knew or someone I didn't know. I'm just curious where it is with our church family. If you have the app, go ahead and take that. It might take a little bit for it to come through. I probably should have given you a little heads up notice, actually. I'm just kind of curious if this is actually ringing true in the, in the way we actually live our lives. So far, we're at 16, 21. And this is not to minimize the, the proclamation, street preaching, track distribution, door knocking aspect. It's simply to make a point. That's actually a very small aspect and if we're depending on that to get the job done, then we're missing the boat. Actually, the vast majority of people, they've come to Christ through a relationship that existed and a conversation that occurred. Does that make sense, guys? This is the runway we're building. And I think I'm feeling pretty good about the risk I took here. That's good. 86% of the folks who responded are saying, yeah, it was with someone I knew. That's true for me as well. I didn't take the quiz yet. So are you, are, you, are you seeing what's happening here? So here's my hope, and then I want to unpack one single verse for you. Let me just say one more thing by way of introduction. My hope then is as we watch this, as we see this survey kind of unfold before us, as we kind of understand more about why we're afraid of evangelism and what we actually should do and so forth, here's my hope is that we'll become committed to having more gospel conversations. That we'll become more committed to to initiating relationships and conversations for the purpose of what matters most. To help you with that, I want you to visit a website sometime before next Sunday. It's this website right here. It's called gcchallenge.com. stands for gospelconversations.com. And we're joining in with this for about six months. Their goal is that by the end of June, they would have recorded a million gospel conversations. Now, Recording it doesn't mean it didn't happen. I mean, if you don't record it, it doesn't mean it didn't happen. I get that. It's just a way to kind of motivate us and help us kind of track progress. But across the nation, folks who are joining in with this, you can take your phone, and let's say you're at Chili's, and you have to have a chance with the waitress to to talk about something more than just what you're ordering. And you actually maybe have a chance to maybe whet her or his appetite. Um, Maybe to invite them to church, or maybe you're, maybe you're going to talk more about what they believe or what you believe. I don't know, however that works, but if it kind of crosses somewhat of a line and becomes a gospel conversation to some degree, what they're asking you to do is this. When you get back to your car or your house, take your phone and just simply take 30 seconds and tell us about that. It'll automatically upload, and we're going to keep like a, like a collection of those who are saying, you know what, I'm committed to more gospel conversations. And maybe that may not be down your alley, your call. But check this website out, would you? And see if God might use this strategy and this tactic to help you be more gospel fluent. Be more courageous to cross the pain line, I'll call it. I'll tell you more tonight about the pain line. But to cross that more often. Be more willing to say, you know what, I'll take this extra step at this point to talk about what matters most. Now to get to that point, to where we're talking about it more, we're having relationships and conversation more often, We've got to start at a place in the text, though, that is verse 16. Because what we're describing here, gospel conversations, some kind of fluency, some kind of readiness to cross the line conversationally, that's, verse seven, uh, that's like verse 22, I think. That's in verse, what, verse 17, perhaps. Paul is talking, he's reasoning. 
Before any of that occurs, something very intriguing happens in verse 16. I want to spend the last remaining moments. The plane's taking off now, by the way, okay? We're in the air. I want to spend the last few moments showing you that we have to start with verse 16. This is where it begins because most of the chapter and most of what we're after is action. Evangelism means doing something, conversing. How, how does that need to look? What does it you know, look like? But I want to submit to you that before we ever will act right in evangelism, we have to think right about it. And the last portion of Acts 17, verses 17 through 33, all hinge on verse 16. Every bit of it. And I don't want to look at 17 through 33 and send you out with, a, with some tactics and tips and tricks of the trade if you don't have the right foundation. And I want to submit to you that the right perspective for evangelism is theological first. Look at the verse with me. Acts 17, 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him. There's the first phrase. As he saw that the city was full of idols. There's the second phrase. Two phrases here show us that, that really Paul saw before he shared. Will you say that with me? Paul saw before he shared. That's going to be our, our first principle in this three-week series. Is that you've got to see first, share second. But most of us run to the sharing first, don't we? We, we feel guilty because of a sermon like this, perhaps. <laughs> or we're in prayer and Bible reading and, and we just feel maybe rightly convicted and so we just run to some kind of like quick fix kind of action. Oh, I'll just talk about it more. And then that dies away and it seems to be low with motivation. Why? Because I don't think we've really understood what 16 is saying. It gives us, in a very quick fashion, the theological basis for Paul's action, for what I would say was Paul's evangelism in the rest of the chapter. Let's analyze it briefly. It says that his spirit was provoked within him. What does that mean? It means that Paul experienced some type of internal irritation. That's actually the best word for the word provoke here. It means to to arouse someone to anger. It means to provoke them. It means to agitate them. Paul here, in a righteous way, was brought to an agitation within himself, a, a, a spiritual irritation. He was brought to some kind of righteous indignation. He was provoked. Why? That's the second phrase. As he saw, the city was full of idols. So watch this. His internal irritation was brought about by cultural idolatry. I was just reviewing this last phrase again this morning. The city was full of idols. The phrase full of idols in your English translation is actually one word. It's the word idol with the Greek preposition uh, throughout. Kata idolis. So here's what, here's what Luke is saying in this chapter, in this verse. That when Paul looked at Athens, throughout the city, idols galore. And in this city, they weren't like Ankeny where they were kind of formed with four wheels or front doors and windows or jobs, or dollar signs. There were actually graven images set up to, to you know, mythical gods and goddesses. And throughout the city were stone carvings and creatures. And, 
As Paul looked at this city deeply embedded in idolatry, the worship of other things except for Yahweh, he was irritated by that. Now, as you read that and as you contemplate that, as a listener or a reader, you should ask yourself one more question. Why was he irritated at cultural idolatry? We know why he's irritated because of the idolatry, but why did that irritate him? Why was his spirit provoked, agitated by so much cultural idolatry? Was he mad because he wasn't getting his place at the table? Like, hey, guys, this is discrimination. I'm going to sue somebody. I need a place for, for my God, too. Was he saying that? Did he feel left out? No. None of this revolved around Paul. Paul was provoked, internally irritated, by the cultural idolatry because he realized something. Theological realization was this. God is yet to be worshipped here. And that grieved Paul. You see, Paul understood something. That the real aim of God's plan is that all people in all places worship him. From Abraham, and I don't have time this morning to walk you through the meta-narrative of Scripture, but from Abraham, when God said, all the nations will be blessed, I'm going to send one through your line, will bless all the nations. You could, you could track this all the way to Paul when he's sent to areas that have never heard the gospel. The goal, God's goal is to get his name to all the nations so there'll be worship in all the nations from all the peoples to God alone. That's been the aim. That's the historical narrative of the Bible. Paul is in Athens and he sees God is yet to be worshipped here. And yet these people are, are craving to worship something and it provoked him. Church, please hear me. May your heart be open to this question. Does it grieve you that God isn't worshipped fully in all places by all people? This is the deepest why behind these two phrases. And so it motivated Paul. Look at the first word of verse 17. So he reasoned. You see the word so? Paul's understanding that God isn't worshipped here yet. Motivated him to take action, to begin to converse, to reason, to establish relationships, to mingle with lost people, to accept invitations, to talk. It wasn't because Paul had a chip on his shoulder or he felt like, well, I've got to have my platform. Paul was grieved, provoked that God was yet to be worshipped in Athens. That's the highest motivation for evangelism. And I will submit this to you. Until that grieves our souls. Until the fact that God has yet to be worshipped by all peoples in all places. Until that grips us and grieves us. We will not be very good at evangelism. We'll have a streak here or there. But it's too man-centered. We'll have a moment of compassion for someone who's down and out or a crisis situation, but it won't last. Only when we realize that the greatest motivation for evangelism is the glory of God and the worship due His name by all peoples in all places. That's when, mo- that's when evangelism will become a lifestyle that we chase This is what's going on in this one singular verse. 
Acts 17, 16. Paul's theological perspective shaped his evangelistic behavior. Can I give you briefly, can I just read through five sentences that will kind of explain to you this flow chart I just explained? Um, You might want to snap a picture of these. I'll just read them because you may be thinking, well, Todd, how did you get there? How did you get from this one verse that Paul was concerned about God's glory and worship and that's what irritated him and that's what motivated him? Here's five statements I wrote this week that I think can walk you through this train of thought. I'll just read them to you, snap their picture, and then we'll kind of close this out, okay? First and foremost, understand this is what we believe here, and I want you to kind of see this biblically. God delights in and deserves glory from his creation. And he does so primarily through the saving of his people by the gospel. Ephesians talks about how that for eternity, God will display the riches of his grace through Christ Jesus in the church. Did you know that? So one of God's goals is to show just how gracious he is by saving a people unto himself and then for all eternity displaying that. So this is what God's goal is. To delight in and and, and receive glory from his creation, the saving of his people. He'll ultimately garner this when Jesus comes and consummates his kingdom. You may be saying, well, Todd, not all people will, will worship Jesus one day. That's actually false. One day, every single thing created in heaven and earth, will give glory and honor to Jesus. Not all in a redemptive fashion, but they all will give glory to Jesus and they'll say, he's king of kings and lord of lords and this will be done, according to Philippians 2, to the glory of God the Father. So we believe that one day is coming when everything created will give God glory. Okay, so this is what he's after. In the meantime, to prevent that, Satan deceives people. He blinds them to the gospel so that they do not worship God. And instead, they worship themselves and other things. The word for that is called idols. Are you with me? This is Romans 1. The Bible says that when we keep saying no to God, we're changing the truth of God into a lie. And he says that people worship the created things more than the creator. Romans chapter 1. This is what happens as Satan deceives people. He blinds them to the gospel. So until this consummation of the kingdom, when all will give God glory, there's this time of blindness and deceitfulness that Satan brings, and it hurts and destroys people. Number three, this is sin and unbelief, when people worship idols instead of God. This is fueled by Satan's deception, and it robs God of worship and glory temporarily. Key word there. But it destroys people eternally if those idols are not exposed and exterminated. So maybe you're wondering, what exposes and exterminates idols? What would Paul do in, in Athens when he is so grieved that God isn't worshipped here yet? He brings the gospel to them. This is statement number four. The gospel does this. It exposes and exterminates idols. It frees people from sin and it empowers people to give God what he rightfully deserves and joyfully delights in. Would you say it with me? Worship and glory. And what is God after ultimately? God is after worship and glory from all people in all places. Now watch the last statement here. When we, say it with me, evangelize. We are prioritizing God's glory. You say, oh, I thought we were helping somebody get saved. I thought we were sharing the gospel. 
We are. But above that and below that is this magnificently glorious truth that what you're actually doing is making God's glory matter most because it grieves you that God isn't worshipped fully yet. So we're going to share the gospel, the great news of Christ, His death, His resurrection, that you can be saved by His grace through faith. We're going to prioritize God's glory because that's what He's after from everyone He created. Evangelism does this. It showcases and prioritizes God's glory. It does show compassion for man's condition, yes. And it battles Satan's schemes. But above all of those, it namely prioritizes God's glory. It aims at bringing people into worship to the one who deserves it. When you grasp that, when you see that that's, you're participating in God's ultimate aim, then evangelism becomes something more than like, um, I just want to keep you out of hell. Like, that's a good motivation. But there's something even deeper for why you should talk to your neighbor. That they're yet to worship God and the one who has saved you, died for you and loves you, deserves to be worshiped by everyone. And let's do what we can to expose Satan's schemes when he's robbing God of worship temporarily and destroying people eternally. Let's share the gospel. Let's enter into conversations. Let's cross the pain line so that as we sow seed, God would bring the fruit. That's all I'm asking us to do is just be willing to sow more seed, have more gospel conversations. They're not going to all produce fruit. I know that. But that's not a reason to stop sowing seed. I didn't think that seven months ago. I kind of said to myself, I'm done sowing seed. That's right, your pastor thought that. I'm just going to sow seed on Sunday mornings, but I'm done talking to folks about the Lord outside of church because, man, it is getting me nowhere. I'd been through like three situations, two of those with Julie, where we just got flat denied. We're working with one young couple that, they're not in our church. None of these are in our church. They're just folks that we know in our community. Got to know them, become friends with them. They come over to the house, and we're helping them with their marriage. And just, you know, one night they came over to eat, and our kids came over. We had a really good time. And then just, I went over to their house one day, and, and they just were like, you know, we're kind of done with this, dog. We, we don't want to do this. We're not really into the Bible's rules about how it should be. And so we kind of know what you believe. And so, hey, you know, thanks, but no thanks. Now, I, for a while, I thought, I must have done something wrong. Now, maybe I did. Maybe I didn't. I don't know right now. But I was like, man, rats. You know, that's, that hurts. Like, this couple came over even later, another couple. And uh, the lady seemed very perceptive. They were in dire need. And the guy just, after hearing the gospel and just having conversation over a number of times, said, you know, I appreciate you sharing that, but, like, I don't even believe that. So now we're not being back. And his, and his wife visibly was, like, distraught by that. Like, oh. He's like, yeah, we're done. Never heard from him again. We reach out, but he's got no interest. I thought, man, what did I do wrong in that? Maybe I didn't do anything wrong. Maybe I did. I don't know. Jury's still out. Another time was an instance on a personal thing where the guy was in a crisis, and I kind of knew him, but as I shared more about how to solve his deepest need, he just said, you know what? I really didn't come to you to talk about that. I just need some help with my situation, so forget it. So I thought, maybe I did something wrong. Maybe I didn't. I don't know. Jury's still out. You with me? But after three of those, I said, hey, God, you know what? I'm kind of done with this whole seed sowing thing. Like, I'm 0 for 3 lately. 
I'm done. And God said, okay, that's fine. You can take that attitude. He said, um, by the way, here's the kind of seed that'll never bear fruit. I'm like, what? He said, the kind of seed you keep in the seed bag and never sow. He said, that'll never bear fruit, so good luck with that. I'm like, you know, Lord, once again, you're right, I'm wrong. I just said, I'll keep sowing. But sometimes you don't know what the result's going to be, do you? That's what makes us fearful of their response, because you you sometimes cast it out, and you don't know what they're going to say. They could be hungry or hostile. So I kind of said, I'm done crossing the pain line. But God's Spirit was so gracious, convicting, I just want to recommit myself to saying, you know what? When the time is right, I want, to, I want to take the step and just have the conversation about what matters most eventually. And there's ways to do that I think I can help you with the next two weeks. But just know, first of all, that we commit to that. We recommit to that, not because, not only because of things like people going to hell, people needing solutions. Those are true, but we mainly commit to that because God's glory matters. And the worship of God by all people in all places matters. So I'm just trying to set your theological foundation in the best place possible this morning for this task of evangelism, all right? And this is what happened to Paul. He saw something before he ever shared something. This is principle number one. See first, share second. Will you say that with me? See first. Share second. Don't mess up the order. See first. And what is it we're to see? Watch this. Some of these aren't real words, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. We see God's rightful position, deserving of all worship from all people in all places. We see man's plightful condition. That's not really a word, but it works for me. That he's being deceived and worshiping false things. And then we see Satan's frightful schemes. Yeah, this is all from the enemy. And so because we love God and want to see him worshipped, we will endeavor to sow seed, to have gospel conversations, to, watch this word, evangelize. Does it mean you're manufacturing fruit? Does it mean you're making the converts? Does it mean you're winning the soul? It simply means you're sowing the seed, having the conversation within a relationship about what matters most ultimately. So the question as we close is this. Do you see it? I didn't ask you if you shared it. Do you see it? If you can drive around Ankeny or Metro Des Moines and not be moved by the people trapped in idolatry via the disguise of safety, image, money. If you can coach your kids' teams and not be stirred by the way Satan traps people through the appearance of belonging when really it's often just busyness to avoid the pain inside. If you can go out to eat And not be mindful of the deep, unmet spiritual hunger of those who take your order and serve your food. If you can shop on Delaware 
and still not see all the multitudes who are actually craving something that money just can't buy, that possessions will never fill. If you can go to school, whether it be high school, junior high, elementary, or college, and not be aware of the deliberate attempts to replace God and change His glory into a lie, if you can watch the news or scan the political scene and not be sickened by the pride and arrogance of pseudo-leaders who parade solutions to things that are actually just symptoms of a much deeper need in our country, if you can attend a church and not wonder why there is such little passion for God's fame and yet so much concern for our own name and comfort and convenience, temperature and parking, God help us. If you can watch what's happening around the world in regards to the persecution of believers, the inexpressible plight of refugees, the escalating world of degrading slavery and trafficking, the inescapable desperation of many orphans, if you can bear the thought that over 3,000 language groups still have no actual copy of the Word of God and no clear understanding that Jesus loves them, came and died for them, and will save them by His grace through faith. If none of those things weigh upon your soul, you're not internally and spiritually agitated and irritated by them. If you're not rightfully jealous for God's glory when all those things are in front of your attention, if you're not appropriately frustrated with Satan's schemes that are plunging men and women into blindness and darkness, then something is wrong with your heart spiritually. You are either genuinely not born again or you are considerably calloused to God's heart for the nations. So my call to you is not to leave these doors with some trick of the trade or, or newest tip to tell your neighbor about Christ. That may come in week two or three. My call to you this morning, church, is to see that God isn't yet fully worshipped by all people in all places. And this should move us. Let's pray. We hope you enjoyed today's sermon. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons. Thanks for listening.